We're continuing our sermon series today called 24-6, looking at this pretty, frankly, radical concept that life is meant to be lived 24-6, not 24-7. It's radical for Americans because we're 24-7 people. But as I asked several weeks ago in their introductory sermon to this series, how's that working for us? You know, it's funny, this might not seem like a controversial topic, but in a way, talking about the biblical idea of Sabbath, that we're supposed to be 24-6 folks, not 24-7 folks, is pretty rough stuff because a lot of us don't live like that. But I want to take it another notch out further today. I want to talk about something larger than this, your individual decisions. I want to talk about the decisions and the values we make as a culture and as a society as it relates to 24-6. We just sang a great song, this line. The lost are found, find the way at the sound of your great name. The fatherless find their rest at the sound of your great name. We have a God who has a heart for particularly those who are suffering, who, who, are, who are at the bottom end, who, who are brokenhearted and downtrodden. And directly to that concern is the idea of Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you take my words and speak through them. Then you take our thoughts and think through them. And that you would take our hearts and light them up with love and compassion for you and for your world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is what we pray. Amen. These are pictures of the city of Dubai. Dubai is a great modern city in the United Arab Emirates on the Persian Gulf. It's well known for being a city that rises like an oasis out of the desert. It's been an, a modern engineering and technological and economic miracle. It, hundred years ago, there was nothing there like there is today. And the tallest building of the world is in Dubai, and it's a great place. And I know there's folks in our congregation who do business with Dubai and fly over there. And you've, you probably said it's, it's amazing what's there. It's so clean and new and gleaming. For a lot of folks in Europe, it's a, now a tourist destination for vacation and, and to get away. The, the hard thing, though, about Dubai is the truth about what its economy is built on. And I'm not talking about oil or international finance. I'm talking about the labor force that's there. Somebody who is a citizen of Dubai is a, a citizen of the country United Arab Emirates. They're an Emirati. But the majority of the folks who live in Dubai are not citizens. They're not Emiratis. They are people from India, from other places in South Asia. And the sad truth of the economy in Dubai is that it's built on the backs of these laborers who work very hard for very little and what I think anyone would consider unjust situations. They, they're promised a certain degree of wages in India. They're desperately poor. They're ready to do anything they can. They come over across the, the water to Dubai and then they're locked into these long contracts. They have very little rights, a sense of redress. It's a very difficult situation. I just raise that to, to point out this thing that we all know, though we don't talk about it a whole lot, is that in our world, we often have a zero-sum society. In other words, if you win, I lose. And if I win, you lose. This is why our politics are so dirty and bitter often. Because our politics are a zero-sum game. If my party wins, yours has to lose and vice versa. If my policy wins, yours has to lose and so on. This is the truth about our world. That's just how the world seems to work. But it actually comes closer to home. You need to know this about me. I don't mean to shock you. I know this will be uh, 
a big letdown because I know a lot of you see me as a hero. People come up to me after church for my autograph, and I'm like, just doing my job, please. You know, it's embarrassing. But you maybe find this surprising, but uh, I'm not good at very many things, or maybe no things. But one of the places I'm particularly bad is in the kitchen. I'm a total loser in the kitchen. Before I was married and I lived by myself, I cooked a little bit, and then I just gave it up. And I lived on frozen pizzas, baby, which uh, there are worse things. Anyway, and nowadays, I don't know anything about cooking or preparing food or whatever. Which means in our household, I, I just tend to do what my wife tells me because she's in charge and she knows how to do that. And she works very hard at it. This spring, we've been having small groups in the church over at, to our house uh, for dinner, two at a time. I have the different small groups as a way just to people to get to know each other. We're still new congregation folks don't know each other. We've done it about eight times. We had an event last Sunday evening with some folks from the church. Earlier that afternoon, we had some ants on one part of the countertop in our kitchen. And Elaine gave me the job of dealing with the ants. She went upstairs and took care of some other things. And so I took out our ant spray and sprayed the place where they were and went about my business. Later on that evening, before our uh, guests were to come over for dinner, she asked me where I had sprayed the ant spray. Now, the questions somebody asks you tell you a lot about their attitude towards you. And so I told her while I took it out, I shook it up, I sprayed it along the counter. Then I opened Jack's drawer where all his uh, dishes are and sprayed all those. I sprayed it through our cabin, and then finally I sprayed it in the, and out in the fridge. I want to make sure no ants could get anywhere. She believed that. If you're here and you were at our house last Sunday evening, that didn't happen. I sprayed up one part of the counter and cleaned it off, and it was fine. And then I also sprayed the taco shells. But other than that, other than that, it was fine. See, my wife thought that that might have been impossible because she knows I'm a total idiot in the kitchen. She, does, she thinks I have no common sense with regard to certain areas, and that seems to be the case. This is why when we have family get-togethers, I'm not in charge of the cooking. I'm just there as sort of brute force labor. I, I, go, I run to the store and do errands and so on. Several years ago, we were together with some family members on Thanksgiving Day, and it turned out we had forgotten some ingredients we needed at the store. And so I went along for the ride to the grocery store to help pick up the ingredients that we had forgotten on Thanksgiving. And as we went to the store, it wasn't empty, it wasn't full, but it was, it was a, a fair amount of folks there. We bought some stuff we probably didn't need. I remember thinking, today is a holiday for me, and I'm on vacation. And yet, to facilitate my vacation and my holiday and my rest, I am forcing other people to work for me in the form of the cashiers and the floor managers of this particular grocery store. Have you thought of that? This is the way our, this is the way the world seems to work. I win, you lose. I rest because you're working to allow me to rest. This is the difficulty with the idea of 24-6. See, for a lot of us, things are only possible because other people are making them happen for us. And this is why I love this topic. Because the biblical idea of the Sabbath is not a I win, you lose. The biblical idea of the Sabbath is for everyone. Everyone wins. Now the Ten Commandments are given twice in the scriptures. They're given in Exodus and they're given again in Deuteronomy. I read from Exodus chapter 20 a few weeks ago. 
we first started talking about the Sabbath. And the idea in Exodus for the Sabbath is that God created the world according to the account in Genesis in six days and he rested on the seventh. And the idea is that God himself doesn't need to push everything to the limit. God can restrain himself and rest. And therefore, that's how humans were created to do as well. But in Deuteronomy, when the Ten Commandments are given, and they're the same commandments in the same order, the fourth commandment, the commandment of the Sabbath, has a different rationale behind it. It's not that we keep it because God rested, but this is why we keep it. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, neither you, listen to this list, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. May God add his richest blessings to the reading and hearing of the word today. At the very heart of this idea of the 24-6 lifestyle is God's concern for all his creatures. Not just the ones who were winning, not just the ones who can afford to take off, not just the ones who have plenty of vacation time, but for everybody. I want to really push this today. This is going to make us uncomfortable because it calls into question so many things that we take for granted. It's been very clear, I think, in the last several weeks, how important the idea of the 24-6 lifestyle is to us as individuals. It's huge. Uh, it changes everything. Our marriages, our finances, our physical health, our faith, our joy. But I think the 24-6 concept is larger. I think it has to do with the justice of God. Justice ultimately is the idea that God is going to make things right. Is when God sees problems and fixes them. Something is just when it is, is right, when it's fair. And God tells the Israelites, you need to keep the Sabbath day so that everybody has a break. Even those who have no say, no power, no clout, no importance in the eyes of the world. They particularly need to rest one day a week. And the reason for this is this principle that I'm going to call the fact that sin always runs downhill. Sin and selfishness always run downhill. Here's what I mean. Let's say there's a kingdom, and there's a, a peasant laborer in the kingdom, and he's cruel and tyrannical in his family. Who is it that's affected by his sin? His wife, and particularly his children, the people in the place of vulnerability. Now let's say in that same kingdom there's a king, and he is cruel and tyrannical and ruthless. Who is affected by the king's sin? Everyone below him in the kingdom. The peasant's sin doesn't affect the king, but the king's sin affects the peasant. The peasant. Or there's the example from the show The West Wing. You ever seen that show? One of the storylines is that the president has, has MS and lied about it for years and doesn't want anybody else to know about it. When his staff finds out, they're furious. Why? Not just because he lied and because he has this disease, but because his lies jeopardize their jobs, their livelihoods, and what they believe in. Because sin always runs downhill. And that's why sin ultimately always affects the people who are more vulnerable 
and less powerful than you, regardless of your situation. And therefore, it always affects the most, the children among us. We live in a culture that has abandoned the idea of 24-6. I'm not some sort of reactionary that says we need to turn back the clock to how things were in 1950 or 1850. There's a lot of problems with that. But just because we've come a long way in certain areas doesn't mean there were other things culturally that were better for us in those times. And I think the idea of keeping a 24-6 lifestyle as a culture is an idea that's not just better for us, it's more just and more fair. See, when I go on Thanksgiving Day to the grocery store to buy stuff that, frankly, I don't really need, that my life would go on if I didn't have it, I'm obligating to work for me, people who work, as cashiers and floor managers and custodians in the grocery store. Just so I can buy some ingredient that we've forgotten, I force them to work to have time away from their family. Now, when I visit the grocery stores, and I know folks in our congregation and, and who work in retail, the people who often work in those stores, and some of us are here like that today, you're often struggling. It's difficult. It's hard work. You're on your feet all day long. You have terrible hours. And you know who it's particularly bad for? Families, particularly like single parents, single moms. Some of you here know the challenge of that. You're a single parent, and you know how hard it is to fit your parent time with your work time. If by our choices to insist on 24-7 lifestyles, everything must meet my needs and our needs, if our choices obligate other people to work, it usually affects those who most need that one day a week for rest and recreation and be together as a family. It doesn't just affect the single mom, it affects the single mom's children. All because you and I forgot some small ingredient on Thanksgiving Day or on the Sabbath day each week. Now I realize this sounds really reactionary and I realize you're thinking, are you actually calling into question our economic choices? I am. I don't think it's possible to be faithful to the scriptures to look at God's heart for how the world is meant to be structured and not say some of these difficult things. Particularly when you read about the year of Jubilee. This is in Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus is another one of the Old Testament books. The idea comes about in Israel's history that it's not just one day a week is meant to be a Sabbath to the Lord, but one year out of every seven. There's a Sabbath year. But seven times of seven years leads to year 49. In year 50, this is what's supposed to take place. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 and following. Count off seven Sabbath years. Seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It should be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vine. As part of the fabric of ancient Israel is the idea that every 50 years things need to be reset. It's a day of liberty and release to the captives. There's a long chapter. You can read the rest of it at home. But one of the provisions is, is that every 50 years, all debts are canceled. Why? Because God knows that what happens through sin and our own selfishness and laziness and other situations, some of us begin to accumulate more and some begin to accumulate less. And once you get into that cycle where you've sold your land, in ancient Israel, people are landowners, when you've sold your land, 
and you sold yourself into slavery, and you can't get out of it, it's never going to get out. It's going to go along like that for generations. And yet every 50 years, God says, no, I want to wipe the slate clean and start over and make things just again. And it's called the year of Jubilee. It's a big deal throughout the rest of the scriptures. This is God's desire for his people, particularly the vulnerable among them. What's so great about the year of Jubilee as well as the Sabbath teaching is that it's not just for the Israelites. It's not just for those who believe in God. It's for everybody. The Sabbath is for everybody in the culture, everybody in the society. Because everybody's been created in the image of God and everybody needs one day off to rest and reconnect with their creator and taste how sweet and good God is. So let's be really practical. Let's really push this. Like a lot of the difficult things in scriptures, the answers are not easy or obvious. But just because they're not easy and obvious doesn't mean that we should ignore them. In fact, I think the things that are important often are meant to be dug into. I think it's time for us to call into question the lifestyles that we live that are 24-7. I'm just talking, not talking about your family. I'm talking about business practices. I'm talking about the way you and I live. Now, clearly, some people have to work on the Sabbath. It's obvious. Doctors, nurses, people who keep us safe. If you run a hotel or a gas station on the interstate and so on. But I just would like to suggest that probably most of our retail shopping experiences do not have to be 24-7. In fact, there's one area in Dallas I know you can't buy on the Sunday. You know what that is? A car. You can't buy a car on Sunday. I don't see people going without cars or really struck by that. If you can't buy it on Sunday, you can buy it on Monday or Saturday. It's not going to kill you. But you know what that means for the people in the car business? And we have some who work in our, who come to our church. It means that every Sunday, regardless of what the week has been like and what kind of hours they've worked, they have clear edges in which they're able to rest. And the reason that's possible is because ultimately all the car dealerships have said, we agree that that's better, let's all have a gentleman's agreement between us and we're not going to work on this day of the week. They could shift around their work schedules and work the other six days, but they've said we're going to keep this day off. I realize I'm talking about big things, I realize you're saying this doesn't seem practical I wasn't aware that the way we decide what's right or wrong is what everybody else is going to go along with, though. I wasn't aware that we make decisions on whatever is best for our bottom line. In fact, I thought we make decisions, if we're Christians, on what's most faithful. Now, i got to tell you, I have obligated people to work for me on the Sabbath day countless times, hundreds of times. And some of the things have been good. They've been traveling, or we've had taken folks out to dinner. And other times, it's just been my own laziness and selfishness. I could have waited another day. And studying about the Sabbath has caused me to call, call some of that into question, really. Maybe it'd be better for everybody if there was more clear edges. I've used the analogy a lot that I think the Sabbath is meant to be like Thanksgiving Day. Of course, this year, Black Friday started on Thanksgiving. Do you hear that? And I just thought, what a shame. What a shame. Is, is there nothing sacred? Is there no end to our greed? Is it always getting ahead? How is it working for us anyway? See, I believe when we trust God and are faithful, God blesses what we have anyway. I don't know what your business is. I don't know what your decisions are. These are complicated issues. I am suggesting that it's probably time we need to ask the questions. Are the way we've structured our lives, is it a way that leads to blessing and shalom and peace and Sabbath for everybody or just for us? 
And this is why this is so important. When Christ came, he didn't come as a king. He came as a poor baby, homeless, without a place to lay his head. Sin always runs downhill, and that's why Christ left his position at the right hand of the Father and came all the way down to redeem history from the bottom up. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, you see him having a heart and concern for the poor and broken among us. Why? Because that's part of who God is. God cares when things aren't right. God cares about the vulnerable and the weak, particularly the children among us. If we're going to be people who follow the call of Jesus, we're going to have to take what he says about justice and sin and society seriously. It's not enough just for me to turn off my email one day a week, although that's important. God is calling me to care about the health of our whole society, what's best for us as a people. See, in God's economy, it's not one of scarcity. It's no longer, I win, you lose. God's economy is one of abundance. I win, you win. Shalom is shalom for all. Peace is peace for all. If my neighbor's at war and I'm at peace, there's no peace. It's still war. So what does this mean? I think it means we need to start asking tough questions about this 24-6 concept. It means we're going to ask questions about how we spend our money. What are we supporting? I don't think it would hurt most of us if we stayed home on Sundays or spend as little money as we could, or just try to concentrate on, on blessing our neighbors and our own families. Now, there's all kinds of exceptions. I realize those. I'm just pushing it out there. I'm trying to push your buttons a little bit, poke you to start considering this. And I have no illusions that somehow if the church starts living a certain way, all of society will go along with it. And yet I do think that maybe, just maybe, if we were going to be faithful people with care for God's concern for the poor and broken among us, more people might listen than we think. Last night, I took part in a discussion in our neighborhood with some folks who are atheists, discussions about theology and why these questions are important. I was invited by a couple in our congregation who are our friends, and you need to know this about me. I hate going out in the evening, and I'm a homebody, and I particularly hate doing stuff on Saturday night. So for me to go anywhere on Saturday night is a miracle and a moment of weakness, I agreed. And we had this discussion with these folks in our neighborhood who don't believe at all, who don't believe anything that I believe. And this morning I've been reflecting on that a lot. And I, I just wonder if, if the answer to our cultural questions about how do you believe in God and is this true or not, I wonder if the answers are not intellectual answers. But the answers come down to you and me and our concern for the vulnerable and the hurting among us. See, ultimately, the reason I'm a Christian, I should have said this last night, it's not for some kind of intellectual argument because I've encountered the God who loves me and who has a deep, abiding, burning passion and love for the world. That's the God I believe in, the one who meets with the sinners and the broken and the lepers, who has right in the midst of his word mechanisms for making things more just, for caring for everybody, not just the rich but the poor, not just the free but even in the ancient Israel economy, the slaves. I think when we begin to live 24-6, it's not just that we're going to sleep better at night and have less stress in our lives, although those are true. I think we're going to begin to participate in the justice of God. And what we've known for 2,000 years is that regardless of how crazy it sees and seems to the larger culture, when God's people begin to live faithfully into the justice that he desires, 
everything changes. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may God give us the grace to respond. Amen.